Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Today's guest is dubbed the most influential living moral philosopher. I first wrestled with his work 30 years ago in first-year philosophy at the Australian National University in Canberra. His utilitarian ethical ideas rubbed up against my righteous feminist thinking. They grated with my idealist worldview at the time. I should say, in some circles, Peter Singer has also been called the most dangerous man in the world. A line he argued not so long ago that parents should have the right to end a baby's life if the baby will have prolonged suffering, like brain injury, for instance, saw him blocked from universities and auditoriums worldwide. Pete, though, is used to controversy. He's been sparking it for five decades. He beelines to the hard stuff. He's spoken out on euthanasia, abortion, bestiality, cancel culture, mandatory vaccinations, and much, much more, and always through a utilitarian lens, which is a moral philosophy that says our actions should always maximise the most well-being possible. In the early 1970s, he started the animal rights movement with his book, Animal Liberation, and got millions switching to vegetarianism. He splits his time between the US and Melbourne, and he's a mad surfer at the age of 75. Sarah Wilson brings you wild ideas for a fired-up life. More recently, Peter Singer has written a book called The Life You Can Save, which spawned the effective altruism movement. This framework for living has a cult-like following that includes Sam Harris and Bill and Melinda Gates. Peter will explain more about what effective altruism is in a moment, but this will give you a hint. Last year, Peter was awarded a $1 million prize for his contribution to philosophy, and he gave away the lot. He's also about to kick off an Australian tour with all profits going to particular and, I should say, effective charities. What does it mean to be a good person? How much should we give away in the Western world? And should we shame rich people who don't give enough? These are just some of the questions we'll kick around today. You might find it uncomfortable, but you'll definitely find it insightful. I'd like to kick off, I think, with your drowning child thought experiment. It's a really great place to pivot from for a discussion about effective altruism. Could you explain that experiment, which I think you devised in the early 70s? Yes, that's right. I was interested in the question of whether we have obligations to strangers who are in great need and who we can easily help, but uh, where we're not responsible for their plight in any way. So. I thought of a parallel and I asked my readers to imagine that they're walking across a park. The park has a pond in it. They know that the pond is shallow because in summer they see kids playing in the pond and they can stand up quite easily. But it's not summer now. You don't expect to see anyone in the pond, but you do notice that there is something moving in the pond. And when you look more closely, you see it's a small child, too small to stand even in the shallow pond. And this child seems to be in danger of drowning. Now, your first thought probably is, uh, who's looking after this child? There must be parents or a babysitter or someone around, but you can't see anybody. And you realize that if you don't jump into the pond very fast and pull the child out, the child will probably drown. There's no risk to you, but there is a small cost because you're put on some really expensive clothing to go somewhere important and it's going to get ruined. 
So do you think it would be okay to say, I don't want to ruin my nice clothes and I'll forget that I ever saw this child. After all, I'm not responsible for the child being in the pond. So why don't I just walk on? And, and virtually everybody says that would be an awful thing to do. You'd be a horrible person to do that. And I agree. But I then point out that, in fact, we can save the lives of children. They may not be in front of us, but we can know that we'll save the lives of children by donating to effective charities that are saving the lives of children in low-income countries where they're dying, perhaps from malaria because they don't sleep under bed nets, or from diarrhea because they don't have any treatment in their villages for diarrhea, which can be cheaply supplied, or, you know, they haven't had certain uh, immunizations. There's a whole host of reasons why children are dying from preventable causes. And if we help them, we can, we can save those lives or we can help their families to get out of poverty. So um, I argue that's, that's what we ought to be doing, just as we ought to save the child in the pond. So we ought to be helping children and, and adults who we can easily help, but very small cost to ourselves, but uh, we're not helping them at present, or most people are not helping them. So for the sacrifice or the cost of saving one child in close proximity in a pond, your point is that you can actually save far more children's lives. On the other side of the world, you don't get to see them. You probably don't get to get the pat on the back for the heroic act from bystanders. But the point is you save more lives if you can think outside of that thought experiment. And that's the point of that thought experiment is to, I suppose, illustrate that we ought to do good. To be a good person, we ought to minimise suffering and help where we can. But further to your point, it needs to be as effective as possible. There's the two strands to it, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. That's right. Mm. That's why this movement that I'm involved with is called effective altruism. It's altruistic in the sense of thinking we shouldn't just be thinking of ourselves. We should be thinking about helping others and particularly reducing suffering and preventing premature death. But um, a lot of people, when they do give to a charity, they don't think very much about how effective is this charity? What kind of value am I getting for my donation? Um, we, We do think about value for money, of course, if we're buying a new phone or a new car. We do a bit of research. What's the best that I can get for this amount that I can spend? But very few people do that with charities, uh, and yet it's really important. Uh, and now, thanks to the internet, it's not hard to find out either which of the organizations that are really effective. The extra step in all of this is that you also advocate that once we have what we need to live a comfortable lives, uh, life ourselves, we should actually sacrifice or give up or donate anything excess. And I think you've used the example quite often of, you know, next time you buy a bottle of water, leaving aside the climate implications and the plastic in the ocean and all of that kind of thing, it's an excessive thing. Nobody needs to buy a bottle of of water. That money should be put to um, saving other lives and also reducing suffering. So there's this idea that there's a threshold at which once you've got enough to be a good person, you should then be using that surplus to save other lives. What is the actual amount <laughs> that you've calculated, you and others in this effective altruism movement have calculated? Like, is it 50000 Is it 80000 a year, Australian dollars? What is it that we should actually be morally working towards and then from that point forward um, be donating? Right. So um, I did quite a few years ago try to do that sort of sum. Um, I wrote an article for the New York Times called uh, How Much Should a Billionaire Give and How Much Should You Give? And I then came up with, uh, this was in the US, around 30,000 US dollars could meet your potential needs. But um, I've now decided that it's, that's really too much of an ask for most people. Um, Very few people are prepared to be that saintly and to be honest, I'm not that saintly myself. So instead, I've now got a table in, in the book, The Life You Can Save, which I wrote about this and which, incidentally, people can download uh, free as an ebook or audio book from thelifeyoucansave.org. I instead suggested percentages that people could give at various incomes, starting off with quite a low percentage if they're on a low income. Again, this was written in US dollars, but I think for 
$40,000 a year, I was saying you could give 1% without any real sacrifice. In fact, you know, I would argue it's not a sacrifice because you get more meaning and fulfillment in your life by doing this. But, um, and then it goes up gradually. And what I'm trying to do is to find levels that is not really a major sacrifice for anyone, even when you get up to the multi-millionaire class uh, or people are even earning an income of around a million dollars, I suggest they can give a third of that income without any real hardship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's a gradual progression like a tax scale that uh, moves up. And I think people are more ready to grapple with that and more ready to say, yes, I can do that than if you just set a level and say, you, know, you should give everything above, as you say, 50,000, 80,000, whatever it might be. There's a whole movement, though, that has spawned from all of this. You've got Toby Ord, another Australian who's working over in the UK. He capped his income, and he's a he's a lecturer. Um, he's obviously not on a... He's, I think, in a professor or, or associate professor or something like that's that. That's right. So he's not on Oxford a huge, University. huge income. Yeah. Um, but he, I think, lives at a sort of an income of about £18,000 a year and then donates anything over and above that. Yeah, that was, um, that 18,000 pounds, I think was, was at the time that he was, he graduated, which is a few years back now. And of course there's been inflation. So I, I doubt that it's that, but, um, yes, he, he, he did a calculation, in fact, as to how much he would be able to give in his lifetime and how much good he could do with that. So he added a couple of thousand a year to the graduate scholarship he was living on, feeling that that was okay. And then imagine that he would spend that each year and donate what he would earn. And he assumed that he would become an academic as he has, and you could roughly work out what the salaries would be. So um, he ended up with quite a large sum, I think maybe a million and a half or something like that, that he could give um, over that period of time. And then he looked around to see what would be the most effective thing to do. And uh, he, he settled on preventing trachoma, which is the cause of uh, largest cause of preventable blindness in the world and it can be very simply prevented, um, but it would save very large numbers of people from becoming blind quite cheaply. And he worked out that he could prevent 80,000 people from becoming blind. So, you know, if you're a Melbourne person, think about the MCG, say, pretty much full of people and all of them would owe their sight to you and the fact that you decided to live modestly and give the surplus to an effective charity. And that's, you know, really pretty amazing fact. I, I still think it's sort of mind-boggling fact that one person, not Bill Gates, not a not a billionaire, not the afterpay guys or anything like that, who's made a just an academic, could prevent 80,000 people yeah. becoming blind. Yeah, I mean, th- there's been a number of calculations that have been done that have been able to work out what is the most effective altruism. Perhaps you can share with us what that is. My understanding is it's to do with the malaria and the the mosquito nets. Is that right? There are different things. And of course, the facts change as different things develop. Um, But yes, the Against Malaria Foundation is one of the organizations recommended by The Life You Can Save. And again, people can see our recommendations at thelifeyoucansave.org. And um, it's a pretty lean, efficient organization that um, distributes bed nets, uses local people to distribute bed nets and educate others on how to use them properly. The bed nets themselves are are very cheap and effective in preventing malaria. So that's one cost-effective uh, way of doing it. But there are also, for example, now drugs that another organization distributes during the malaria season. There's a particular season for malaria in, in many countries when it's, when it's wet. And uh, they found that that's highly effective and uh, even cheaper in terms of reducing the number of cases of malaria than the bed nets providing health information over local radio stations in many countries where people don't read newspapers or have television has turned out to be quite effective. Uh, so there are a number of different interventions and uh, you know, depending on the figures you get, you might prefer one over the other, but there's, there's, there's quite a choice of ways of helping people. Yeah, I think the malaria nets cost $5 each and they can save several people's lives because you know a family will sleep under these these mosquito-resistant nets. That, that's true, but you can't say that you're saving a life for five dollars because not as you know, people did survive in these regions even before malaria nets. Not yes. everybody would have died without them. But um, but if you distribute a number of them, then uh, yes, statistically, you are going to be saving uh, yeah. a life or, or lives. So if we extrapolate this out, 
the more cash that you've got, the more excess money that you've got, then there's more of a moral obligation to be more vigilant in this effective altruism. That is to say that if you if you have excess beyond what you actually need, let's say beyond the average wage, you know, here in Australia, then you're more morally culpable. There's more of a moral responsibility. Have I got that right? Yes, I think that's right. I think uh, you can't expect people to give away in ways that harm their basic needs, their basic interests, and we all have those to be fed, clothed, sheltered, and so on. So, uh, yeah, it's you can meet those basic needs. And then the question is, so what are you doing with what you have over them? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I think it's, it's reasonable to say, well, people want to take some time off, families want to go on holidays, spend some good time together. But there's a certain point at which you could say, look, this is not something that really is important to you, and yet you're spending significant amounts of money on it. Could save lives, could prevent people becoming blind, could uh, help people work their way out of poverty uh, if given through effective charities. And uh, wouldn't that be a much more important thing than what you're spending it on? And moreover, wouldn't it add some meaning to your life if you felt, well, I have this money, what am I doing with it? One of the things that I'm doing with it is that I'm really making a huge difference to the lives of people who, through no fault of their own, just because the country that they were born in and the situation they were born in, don't have the good fortune that I do. So wealthy people who are spending their money, choosing, you know, actively to spend their money on bottles of water, um, expensive four-wheel drives, private schools, whatever it might be, or they're keeping more than they need, are they therefore less good morally? I think they're they're not living a fully ethical life in the way that people who were thinking more about how to help others with that money that they're spending uh, would be living. You know, should they be shamed? Is that ethical? I think at the extreme level, that's appropriate. Um, I've picked on, for example, some of the billionaires who spend money on on what they call yachts, which of course are not little sailing boats that you sail around uh, Sydney Harbour or Port Phillip Bay on, but are these huge ships powered by large engines that uh, they keep somewhere and that cost up to $200 million to, mm-hmm. to own. And, and just think of the mosquito nets you could buy with all think that of the fuel, mosquito right? Nets, uh, absolutely, that's right. You could really... You could make a huge difference with with that sort of money. And, and, you know, I have to say to their credit, some people are making a a big difference. Gates, for example, has set up the the Gates Foundation, which has saved many millions of lives, I believe, and uh, a number of other wealthy people are doing, yeah, it's not like everyone is, but those who don't, those those who spend it on on these uh, luxury boats and then maybe, I don't know, buy a sports team or something in the United States, that's a popular thing for billionaires to do. Mm -hmm. I think that that they should be shamed. I think that that's not, you know, in the world in which we live, that's not the right way to live and to spend your money. I'm not saying that everybody has to be absolutely equal or anything like that. I'm just saying that the the inequalities are too glaring and, and in particular, the fact that people can't meet their basic needs gives them a, a claim on on our abundance, if you like, our superfluity. At the very least, they can't really morally call themselves a good person if they've been oblivious to this equation, I suppose. Um, can I ask you, Peter, uh, are you a good person? Well, as I said, I'm, I'm certainly not a saint. Um, I do spend money that I don't really need to that could be doing a lot of good. But I judge myself also by the fact that I, know I am giving a substantial part of my income, which is, which is not huge. I'm, I'm a perfectly well-paid Professor at Princeton, now a half-time professor at Princeton. And so, you know, I'm, I'm certainly very comfortably off and I've been giving 30, 40%, sometimes uh, around half of my income to effective charities. And, and, and last year, because I was awarded the million dollar Bergruen Institute's prize for philosophy and culture, and I've given all of that away. So last year I've given maybe 80% Over of my, by earnings uh, mm. more. Yeah, I think I'm... I'm not a bad person, but I, I, I could be better. And I recognize that there are other motivations that I have, including looking after my family, spending time with, uh, with, with family and children and grandchildren. How do you factor that, that aspect of things into the effective altruistic model? 
you know, that, that human need to connect with others, um, downtime, all of that kind of thing. Because in many ways, the effective altruistic model can be extrapolated outwards to every action, you know, if you were to take it to its extent. I know that you nursed your mother, um, you know, with dementia for quite some time and the argument was put to you at some stage, well, that money could have been put to saving people in Africa. How do you balance that out personally? Yeah, it it, it could have, you're right, but I didn't want to see my mother really in a in a bad state. Um uh I um I suppose I I, I now think and as I said earlier, this is to some extent you might say I've I've softened my position. I, I I now think that it's reasonable for people to say there are things that I want to do for myself and my family in particular. And if you do that with an eye to how much you're spending and what the alternatives are, and you still are giving substantially to help people uh, in great need, I'm not going to condemn you or shame you for doing that. And I can't really because I'm in that kind of situation myself. I want to come back to that sort of uh, that point between humanity and morality in a moment, but I'm going to get a little bit granular um, with some of the the details of this framework. It's a moral framework, and I think it's a really interesting one, one that a lot of people have found to be very beneficial in terms of guiding us through fairly bumpy moral ground at the moment. But I've heard you use the example of a guide dog, so we could actually put our money towards paying for one guide dog for one blind person here in Australia or in America, wherever it may be that same amount of money could save between 400 and 2,000 young people from blindness in, in Africa as per Toby Ord's work. How far should we take this thinking, this sort of thought experiment, I suppose? Should we be extending it to animals, which of course you argue are sentient beings with equal value at that level as, as humans? So that money on a guide dog could be spent to save I don't know, hundreds of thousands of chickens abused in factory farms and so on. How do we determine how far we take this? Mm. Um, so these are very difficult comparisons to make, uh, I believe. The guide dog example is a, is a good one because I do think that we shouldn't really be influenced by the fact that the person who is blind is a fellow Australian as compared to somebody living in, in Africa. I think it's clearly a greater benefit even just to one person to prevent them being blind than it is to give a blind person a guide dog. So even if it was just one for one, I think we should prevent a person being blind rather than providing a blind person with a guide dog. And as you say, the the cost of training the guide dog and training the blind person to work effectively with the dog is really quite high and could prevent many people from becoming blind or restore sight in people who have cataracts, for example, where they can't afford to get them treated uh, as we all can in Australia. So I think that that's a good case where it's regrettable perhaps that we can't provide or wouldn't be providing blind dogs for everyone in Australia, but while there are so many people who are blind and could be there, their blindness could be cured cheaply or who will become blind if they don't get treatment for trachoma, um, I think we should be looking outside Australia. So that's part of it. That's the first part um, of your question. Now, sorry, you have to remind me then there was the chickens. The chickens that's right, the animal <laughs> comparison. So it's really hard to compare what the suffering of a chicken is like as compared to the suffering of a person who is blind perhaps. But I do give to animal organizations. I do think that uh, factory farming in particular causes a vast amount of suffering. Um, and I give to organizations that are trying to either improve the lives of those animals in factory farms or um, encourage people to not purchase from factory farms, which largely will mean purchasing plant-based foods. But of course, you can also buy free-range eggs and some other animal products. But to the point, I suppose, that I'm making there is how do we weigh up a life? How do we weigh up one person's life here, you know, child in the pond in pro close proximity with a child in Africa with an, a chicken um, in a factory right. farm? How do, we, how do we grapple with that? You've made almost a 60-40 split in your donation, uh, your, your grant uh, money. How would you say the rest of us approach this? So... I mean, there are two comparisons that you mentioned there, the, 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 the child in the pond in front of you and the child in Africa, I would see as equivalent. 
the only reason for thinking that it's more obvious to save the child in the pond is that you can have perhaps greater certainty that you are saving the child. There's no question the child is there in front of you um, and would have drowned. And even when you go give to an effective organization recommended by the life you could save or some other organization, you may still have a bit of a doubt about, you know, is this really going to get to the right thing? I, I think it's overwhelmingly likely that it is with, with the organizations that have been properly independently assessed, but, but you might have some more doubt. Um, but when it comes to the comparison with the chickens or um, other animals, it's really hard. I, I had a, a student at Princeton writing a thesis on, on whether you could make these comparisons. There are some philosophers now looking at cross-species comparisons of well-being, but I haven't seen either in my own student or in the work of others, I haven't seen anything that sort of convincingly says, well, saving 20 chickens from factory farm, life in a factory farm is equivalent to saving one human being or, or any kind of figure along those lines. There's another um, consideration that's often brought up, and that is, should we be changing our career path to be as good as we can as, as a human? Is it better to shift course and go off and be an aid worker, handing out malaria nets or whatever it might be? Or is it better to work in finance or Bitcoin or perhaps even some morally suspect career path like oil trading or something, I don't know, to raise as much money as we can and then donate, what, 80% of it to, to causes? What's the uh, what's your moral answer there? Uh, a lot of people do think that you know becoming the aid worker is the right thing to do, but if you happen to have the skills to earn large sums of money to get a job in finance, the way you know that you will be able to earn a lot and you will be able to donate eighty percent of it to effective charities, that may well be the better thing to do. Because after all, if if, mm. if you apply for a job with Oxfam or some other aid organization. There's probably other good applicants in the field. And if you get the job, the the good that you will actually do is only the difference between your skills at this job and the second best applicant's skills, which may be quite small, might be zero or negative, in fact. But, um, but you know, let's assume that Oxfam makes the right choice and that it is positive, but but quite small. But suppose that you can earn a million dollars a year and give 800000 to Oxfam. They can employ half a dozen new people, maybe more, with this um, money that you've given them and set up entire new programs, which would be much more than one aid worker could actually achieve. So, you know, it, it does depend on whether you can do it, what your chances of success in this field are. But I've had some Princeton students who have done this um, and have been very successful in terms of earning money. And I know other people in the effective altruism movement who have given many millions to effective charities, and I'm sure done more good than they would have if they'd simply gone to work for one of those charities. I think there's more and more interest in this, especially coming out of COVID, you know, the great re-evaluation. I think people are really starting to wonder whether their career is causing suffering and also whether it can actually um, do the greatest good. It's a really important consideration, I think, at this juncture in history. But one question, Peter, that's hung over me for probably 30 years since I first came across your work is that effective altruism presumes that reducing or ending suffering is the best moral outcome. Is it? And and why? So let me put it a little more generally. I think improving the well-being of people and other sentient beings is ultimately what's of intrinsic value, ultimately what matters. So reducing suffering is the most obvious way of improving well-being. Of course, you know, I also think it's good to make people happy. People who are not suffering but not happy either, I think if you can improve their happiness, that's certainly important too. But generally, it's easier to see what the cause of someone's suffering is, particularly if it's something like extreme poverty or serious illness then, you know, and if you can relieve that, you know that you've improved their well-being. It's less easy to know what is going to make people happy in the long run. Not impossible. Uh, so, yes, I do see that as the, the ultimate good, if you like, the ultimate standard by which we ought to judge whether we're living an ethical life or not. Have we done as much as we can to improve the well-being 
of other sentient beings. If I can go back to a central tenet of utilitarianism or consequentialism, do the ends always justify the means? So ultimately, I think the answer to that is yes, they do. Um, But of course, in saying that, you need to think about all of the effects of choosing certain means. Suppose that in order to earn this large amount of money that you're going to give to effective charities, you're going to go into oil trading. And suppose that you're actually promoting the use of of fossil fuel in order to maximise your income as an oil trader. Does the end, the fact that you're giving this money to charities, justify the means? Well, not if by promoting fossil fuel you're actually making a lot of people worse off, which you may well be doing. Uh, So that has to be taken into account. But I do think that, yes, ultimately you want to ask what makes something wrong? And the answer is that it does not lead to the best consequences that you could you could achieve. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Why not tax the rich? instead of relying on philanthropy, instead of relying on rich people, almost playing God and getting to determine where the funds, the inequities get balanced out. And of course, as we know, quite often wealthy people like to donate to things that they're into and their friends are into, like universities and art galleries. And it generally involves having a plaque put onto the sports hall or the new, the new wing of the art gallery. And I struggle with this. I, I struggle with this a lot. I, I feel that at the very least, as a better option, a government that's being democratically elected should be choosing where the funds get redistributed and ultimately and hopefully they'll choose to send it to health and education for all and, and other things that actually give people a, a fair chance at life. You've chosen to sort of focus on, on philanthropy rebalancing the inequities through that route, do you see that maybe we should be going upstream with the problem and solving the problem of inequities through tax? I certainly favour the uh, idea that governments should tax people who are very wealthy at a higher level than they do and, and use those that revenue for better purposes. But I'm not able to do that. I'm not able to make governments do that. I can certainly vote for political parties that I believe would come closer to doing that. But it's a question of what's within my power to achieve. And it is within my power to give away a substantial portion of my income. And it's within the power of other wealthy people who may listen to me and other people who are not wealthy, but can still have, as you say, you know, still spending money on things they don't need, like that bottle of water. And we could do a great deal for uh, extreme poverty in the world. In fact, I think, you know, if people were to really give the levels that I'm suggesting. We could eliminate extreme poverty in the world without governments taxing the rich. So it's within our power, within the power of people who are able to listen to this idea to do that. It's not within the power of me or those people to compel governments to tax the rich. So I'm focusing really on what I think is achievable um, rather than what in an ideal world would happen. You've worked as an ethical, moral philosopher for 50 years. You know, you could have put that life's work towards coming up with moral arguments, ways to incentivize and get people to mobilize their government to, to switch tactics. I'm sure 50 years ago, somebody said to you, go ahead and get a whole heap of rich people to donate 
you know, 80% of their income to charities in Africa on the other side of the world, you may have also thought that was an impossible task. I suppose while ever we have the problem occurring upstream, you know, somebody who's throwing the kid in the pond in the first place or, or whatever it might be, the problems will remain. And so, you know, I, I guess I, I feel that utilitarianism sometimes doesn't always address that side of the equation. We could actually be sorting this out from its, from its very beginnings. Well, utilitarianism is uh, about trying to bring about the best consequences and it's very open to evidence that one True. way of doing this will be more effective than another. So I, I don't think you can point to utilitarianism as the reason why we haven't got a better tax system. And, you know, yes, I could have done this for the last 50 years, but there have been many other good philosophers who are already making these more egalitarian arguments. John Rawls, probably the best-known political philosopher in the late 20th century and certainly in the United States, argued that uh, income should be distributed in such a way that gives priority to those who are worst off. And he had a, a huge influence, but the influence was largely in academic circles. You know, huge numbers of PhDs wrote their mm. theses on, on what he was doing. Did he have an influence on changing the tax system in the United States? None at all, as far as I can see. So... I do think that that's a tougher route to follow. And again, I, you know, there are some countries where you could do more, um, where I think some of the European nations may be more responsive to this. Australia, you could work through the Labor Party and the Greens perhaps to, um, to have um, a more equitable distribution. You know, to some extent, I've done that. I, I stood for the Greens you twice did. in uh, Australian elections, unsuccessfully, but... Uh, I guess, you know, that was an early stage of the Greens and I was helping to make them better known. So maybe it did a little bit of good, but... There were consequences. There were consequences, <laughs> yes. Uh, but, you know, you, you just always, you have to think about yeah. what is achievable here and where can, I, where can I make a bigger difference? And I think, in fact, I did make the right decision and I think I've made a bigger difference through appealing to individuals to do this than I would have if I'd simply focused on saying these ought to be the ethical principles that governments follow in uh, arranging their tax systems. I tend to agree, I've got to say, even though my work is often about trying to influence it, uh, upstream, I also tend to agree that we can actually get more contagious change by appealing to the other element, of course, of all of this, you know, of altruism is the feel-good factor. It is contagious. So I get your point there. It was a wise move that you made all of Thank those you. years ago. Now, what I would love to do is actually just to kind of tick off a number of moral issues that many of us here listening around the world, in fact, there's some moral issues we're grappling with in a culture where there's so few moral guardrails, so few moral guiding systems. And I would love you to sort of tick them off as quickly as you like through the effective altruism lens. So mandatory vaccinations, are they good? I believe that they are. I think that it's really important that people get vaccinated. I strongly disagree with Novak Djokovic's claim that it's a personal choice because people who are unvaccinated Firstly, are more likely to pass the virus on to others. And secondly, they're more likely to take up scarce beds in hospital intensive care units and therefore prevent other people getting surgery that is elective surgery in one sense. But actually, you know, if you postpone elective surgery too long, uh, it, mm. can be, it can be fatal for you and it is for some people. Not getting vaccinated is a selfish choice which harms others in the community. And vaccination, you're saying, is often could be viewed as an altruistic act as opposed to something that you just do or don't for your own personal interest. Yes, exactly. You should do it for the community. Even if you're young and healthy and at low risk, you should be doing it for others. I'd love to get your take, if you don't mind, on the Joe Rogan Spotify controversy that played out sort of a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you've followed it, but should Spotify have removed Joe Rogan or his controversial podcasts that were about vaccination or COVID misinformation? Or is freedom of speech more crucial in this instance? Freedom of speech is, is very important. And I'm not going to say that Spotify should have removed Joe Rogan, but I do think that they could have had some other information that they had put into that area so that people who heard Joe Rogan also heard 
other people saying, no, this is not true. This is misinformation. And I don't think that would have prevented Joe Rogan's freedom of speech. But there are obviously more extreme cases. For instance, Sandy Hook, people who denied that, you know, or said it was a hoax. And of course, that then, the consequences of that were such that it then led to violence um, and quite a lot of unrest and, and a lot of harm to the families of the victims. At what point do you draw the line between consequences and freedom of speech? Well, um, I certainly draw the line at hate speech, uh, speech that is simply an appeal to emotions to stir up hatred, which is often racial vilification or hatred against people with a different sexual orientation as we've had in the past. Um, but, uh, you know, I think if people want to put forward absurd theories, um, I would not actually prevent them doing that. Many years ago, uh, David Irving, who denied the Holocaust, which I think is an absolutely absurd claim, and you know, relates to me personally since three of my four grandparents died in the Holocaust, where he was jailed in Austria for some time for, for denying it. I defended him, his right to say that. I think it's absurd, but I don't think jailing people for making those claims persuades anybody that the Holocaust was real. I think what you do is you, you produce the vast amounts of evidence that was real. And I think that's a, a better way to refute false and absurd claims. Well, of course, your new journal um, of controversial ideas, I suppose, really takes up this. It allows academics to come out and publish papers on very controversial ideas and, uh, I guess, prevent them or protect them from being cancelled. They can publish these, these papers anonymously. I wouldn't mind just getting actually a bit of an insight into some of the most controversial ideas you've covered so far or you might have, you know, slated for future, for future issues. Right. So in the first issue, we had two papers relating to the transgender issue, essentially. One was arguing that the term woman means adult human female and um, a person who is male biologically in terms of their genitals and their chromosomes and so on does not become a woman simply by a self-ID statement. Um, and that's, that's a very hot and controversial issue. We also had a reply mm -hmm. um, arguing the opposite perspective in that same okay. issue. So yeah. we, but we, some people would have w not wanted us to publish even the first paper on the grounds that that was going to offend people or deny their identity as, as a woman. Well, um, Peter, you certainly go for the jugular, don't you, with some of these issues? I mean, they're probably as controversial as, as they get. I, I noted that you did an article on enforced coma as a, an alternative to long-term imprisonment, which got me thinking for quite some time. But I, I encourage people to obviously subscribe to your journal if they would like to play some brain sport, you know, and, and really get their moral muscle going because... Um, you know, it's something that we are not trained in, um, in this day and age. But look, I want to move can on I, to some other I just, issues. Sorry, so I can just say one thing. Mm. They don't have to subscribe. It's an open access free journal. It's they just open. have to go to journalofcontroversialideas.org and they can read the issue there. Start reading. Yeah. And, awesome. and we welcome donations to enable us to keep it free and open like that. I like that model. Parents who spend, say, $40,000 per kid to send their child to a private school for a year, should they be putting that money to supporting their local public school to allow for a better education for all? Well, I certainly think that they should be supporting their local public school, their local government school. Whether they should be donating the money that they would have paid in fees uh, is another question. I think they should, as we were saying earlier, they should donate it to help people in extreme poverty outside Australia. But simply by sending, you know, people who could afford to send their children to private schools, simply by sending their children to state schools are actually helping those state schools because they're ensuring that there's a greater mix, greater diversity in those schools and that the schools don't just become a place that educates people who can't afford to go to private schools. That's a, a recipe for giving less attention to those schools and getting them run down, diverting more government money to private schools that often don't really need it. So, yes, I think parents should work with the government school system in order to make those schools as good as possible by being involved in the school, by having their children there. And, and that's the best way to do that. And then free up that 40K to um, help starving children on the other side of the world. Um, that argument seems very sound to me. Um, the climate crisis. 
of course, this raises the idea of the suffering of future generations, which I imagine is something we've got to take into consideration as well in this in this modelling. Should we be putting our money and care to this? And I think I have heard you say that it is the biggest moral crisis of our time. I do think climate change is the biggest moral crisis of our time because it is going to have an impact for not just decades, but quite possibly centuries to come. And what we're doing is, again, I think extremely selfish. We're living a a life of high consumption, which still uses a lot of fossil fuel. And also by consuming meat and dairy products, we're contributing to methane emissions, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. And, and we don't need to do that either. You know, certainly here in Australia and other affluent countries, we have a lot of very good alternatives to eating meat and dairy products. So yes, I think we should be taking action to uh, get to net zero emissions as quickly as possible. 2050 is in a way a little too far ahead. We might pass tipping points before then. I'd like to see uh, us make that progress a lot faster. And here in Australia, where we have such abundant sunshine and, and land that could be and used wind. to harvest that sunshine, yeah. um, it's, it's really scandalous that we are not producing more green energy. One thing I really do like about the effective altruism model is that the ripple-on effect, the, the other consequences of it all, of course, is it is about reducing our consumption. Um, really, we should be consuming what we need and then the excess should be redistributed. And you raised it earlier. I mean, there is enough food on the planet to feed everyone if it's redistributed properly. I'm glad we're on the same page about that. I think it's really interesting that you refer to it as a moral issue. I think it is a moral issue and that's how we've got to start to see it. That leads us to the idea of an election. Here in Australia, we've got an election coming up. Um, No doubt it will be in May at some point. How should we be navigating our decision? you know, as to who we vote for morally. What issues ought a good person base their vote on in 2022? And should we be judging, for instance, our current prime minister's moral behaviour at the moment, particularly in and around the lying um, and so on? Well, I would judge the present government more on what it's done or not done on the issues that we've just been discussing. What has it done on foreign aid? Australia's foreign aid is at a, one of its lowest levels Ever, I think it's currently 0.21%. That means 21 cents in every $100 that the nation earns goes on foreign aid. The United Nations many years ago set a minimum target of 0.7%. So we're below one third of that target now. And there are other nations, including nations that I don't believe are wealthier than us, like the United Kingdom, that are giving uh, 0.7%. So why can't we give that much? So I would judge parties partly on their pledges that way, but also, of course, on, on climate change. And again, the, the government, despite a lot of words about it, has not really moved swiftly and decisively to make Australia carbon neutral as soon as possible. We could be doing a lot more. So when I vote, I will be asking which are the candidates who will do the most to promote climate change and to promote uh, increased foreign aid. And on that basis, you know, although I know they won't form a government, I think voting green is a very good thing to do because if you had a significant number of Greens in Parliament that uh, were needed by whichever party gets the majority, that would ensure that we had stronger climate policies. Um, and I think, you know, for me, the best outcome would be uh, a Labor government requiring green support. I'm curious, you would have to encounter at times like that bare-faced response from people. This is not my problem. It is not my responsibility. And I just want to get on with having a good life for me and my family. And it really does seem to be a little bit of an ethos here in this country, somewhat perpetuated by the current government, where it's just like, yeah, it's just about families, you know, and it's just about us being happy and having a great time and having our holidays and, and all of that kind of thing. How do you try to convince a person or do you not? Do you just present your argument and then just hope that those who are receptive and willing and, and ready will take it on? Or do you try to bring in other aspects of the argument, like, for instance, the fact that it brings joy? Yeah, in, in my book, The Life You Could Save and elsewhere, I do refer to 
psychological studies that show that people who are generous and think about others actually do enjoy their lives more, have uh, more fulfilling and rewarding lives. So I'm, I'm prepared to make that, if you like, sort of like self-interested argument, you could call it, for why people should should act and should be concerned about others. But it's self-interest in a very broad sense. You know, what I really would object to is uh, appealing to self-interest in a purely material sense. It says, well, you'll personally be richer if you do this. But self-interest in the, in the broader sense of saying, I find fulfillment in knowing that I'm contributing to make the world a better place and to know that I'm an effective altruist. I'm doing the most good that I can. I'm fine with people finding fulfillment in that. I think the more people who get their their kicks out of doing that, the better. All right. Chats like this generally leave us with more questions than answers, which I think is kind of perfect. So what do you think? Are you in the right career? Are you willing to donate, say, 10% of your income to effective causes now? Are you willing to send your kids to the public high school and put your resources into making that school experience better for everyone and giving the money to effective causes? Or do you think taxing the rich is a more democratic way to go about things and let democratically elected governments determine how resources should be allocated? I have always argued this, but I get Peter's rebuttal. Inspiring rich people to give is more practically achievable. But I'd argue the consequentialist benefits of living in a society where leaders care about equity or equality from the top down brings added benefits which should be put into the mix. I'd love to actually know what you all think. So please do chime in on my, I guess, my Substack or my Instagram anytime and the details for those are in the show notes. Also there in the show notes, Peter Singer is doing a speaking tour, an evening with Peter Singer in Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne in late March, April this year, 2022. And also I'll put the links in to some of the the websites where you can choose effective altruistic charities to donate to, thelifeyoucansave.org which is Pete's uh, website, and also givewell.org, which is a great one. It narrows it down to the top three causes. We talked about career choice um, and how you can make the biggest impact by switching your career in some cases. And there's a great website, 80,000hours.org. The 80,000 bit referring to how long you get in your career to make an impact. And also the largest national animal advocacy organisation, Animals Australia, which Pete helped start. So that's a really great resource as well. Until next time, please stay wild. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.